You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. We're working through this conversation on healing and all the elements that are necessary. I won't say that they're always necessary in this order. Uh, here you go, June. You'll need that and this. The, I won't say they always have to happen in this precise order, but each one of these steps is necessary. The first one of these in bullet number one is that there will be no healing. There'll be no great transformation until the person acknowledges and is ready to take that step. The, the second one there is that there will be no great healing or restoration uh, without a drastic correction, I'm sorry, until there's an encounter. The, the Bible is full of this story. But again, I, I love the story of Paul because he was religious. He was all things he probably would say he should have been. But things drastically changed for Paul when he actually had an encounter with a person and not with the teaching or with the concept. There will be no great transformation until there is an encounter. We have to meet somebody, not just learn something else. We have, we have done that for a long time. Just We, we put, it, put in another class, and we, we try to learn something that's going to bring some kind of freedom, and it will not come until you actually meet a person. There has to be an encounter. The third one, there will be no healing or restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, no salvation, with a, without a drastic correction in who we believe God is. Until we know he's a father. I, I, I find myself in this conversation over and over and over. If you and I, again, just use this just a bit ago. If I were to ask you to go get the book where you had kept a record of all the things that your child or your children ever did wrong, where you wrote it down, you tracked it. And I wanted you to go get that book so that I could look at it. What would the unanimous answer be back to me? Do Don't have one. Why would we think God has one? Why would we think if we as parents with our, the love we have for our children haven't kept that record of wrong, why, we, why would we think God did? And by the way, if, if you're not doing that, what were you busy doing? You were always thoughtful, careful, and mindful of what your child needed next. It was a, it was a constant exchange. You took away the size two and put them, replaced them with the size three. You took away these toys and you, and you, put, and you gave these toys because you were always watching, always careful, always mindful of what your child needed next. Where do you think you got that? You got it from him. Because what's he been doing with us all along? What has he continued to want to do with us? He wants to take that which we have outgrown and replace it with that which he has for us to take us into that next step. But what's the problem when you start trying to take that child's toy away? Well, they'll fight you for it. And it drastically slows the pace of the exchange. 
So when we find ourselves recognizing that he is a father who has something planned for us, and it's perfectly okay to let go of that which I've been desperately hanging on to because he has something in store for me. He is my father. And if I'm humanly capable of loving my child in a way that is good and healthy and wholesome, why would I not fully anticipate that my father in heaven would love me the same way? You see, there has to be a drastic correction not to erase what we know of God, not to erase the reverence we have of God, the splendor that we see in him, the things that we have been taught, that he is worthy and deserving of being high and lifted up. But I can't leave it there when he has spoken so much, shown us so much about what the father's heart looks like toward his children. He cares, he loves and we should, we should approach him with, with that understanding. So there has to be that correction. Number four, there will be no great change until we know that God knows and loves us. Not irreverent, not distant, not forgetful, not absent. He loves us. Number five, there will be no great change until we know, until what we know becomes faith. This is a big one, but I'm still, I won't linger here very long. But once again, we have learned God in concepts. We have sat in churches for years and years and years and talked to us about God. Now, I'm not going to tell you that, I'm, that I prefer hymns over, over praise songs because I love both. But the, the strange part about hymns is that they teach us to sing about God. Praise songs lets us sing to him. There is a basic difference, and that's why it's not wrong to have either one. But the hymns rarely, we, we acknowledge in the songs the things that we're learning about God, and they're reinforced in the hymns that we sing. But again, just what we were singing this morning. You know, when, when we start singing, fill me up, fill me up till I overflow. I want to run over. I want to run over. This isn't arms lifted. If I want him to fill me up, what would this be? What do you think? It's a funnel. I mean, I want him to know that my heart is fully open. I want him to fill me up and I want to overflow. I want what you get from me when I start speaking, I want you to know it's the overflow of him and not another concept that I'm going to try to, try to share with you about God. He, what we know has to become faith. Go back to it over and over and over. Billy walks in, he believes, he's tired. He believes that that chair will hold him. But it will do him no good until by faith he rests in it and let the chair go to work on his behalf. Faith will profit us, profit us nothing until there's that action of faith that lets God go to work on our behalf. What we know about God has to become faith so that it can profit us and, and, and create a drastic change. Number, number six there will be no great change until the Holy Spirit reveals truth. The Holy Spirit brings us into the mysterious and the miraculous. I want to tell you, it's real hard to get somebody 
to change if the Holy Spirit doesn't do a mysterious work, a miraculous work. And we're going to talk a little bit more extensively about that tonight. If you want to, on number seven, flip back a couple of pages. As a matter of fact, flip back to page 25, and you'll find that same number seven at the top of that page. And that's, that's where we'll begin tonight. Here's where I want to start. There will be no healing, no restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, and no salvation until we understand that our mind and our heart are the battlefield, but the weapons are spiritual. I told you this morning that I'm going to share something tonight that if you get it, will be life-changing. It's not going to be one of those things that's just going to jump off the page and, you, and you're going to immediately perhaps have the wow. But if you get there, the wow is fantastic. We have, for a long time, been taught correctly that, the, that our mind is the battlefield where the, where the war rages. But we've also, there's been a disconnect and it's been a big one. Because if I had to stand on the battlefield and let the battlefield provide the weapons, how successful am I going to be? Not. Because the battlefield is the place where the, where the fight goes on, but our weapons are not of the mind. And I want to, sh let's go, let's go to the scripture. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exhausts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Verse 5 is the chronic problem. Shouldn't be, but it is. Because when, when, when this has been taught to me, and I've heard it for years, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exhausts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, where have I put the responsibility of doing that? On me. I put it on me. And I will tell you the effect of that is a dead loss. But we've been trained. We have been taught something that has set us up for ongoing lifelong battles instead of true victories. Because most of us can admit that I have a problem that I've been battling a year or two years or 10 years. I still seem to have somewhat the same struggle today that I've had a long, a long time. The testimony of that tells us that we missed something in the teaching. We missed something. Now, 
if we would go back and connect verse five with verse four, we won't get confused. Because the answer is written right here, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exhausts itself. There's a very simple concept. I wrote this, look, look in your notes. There's a very simple concept to teach and understand, but very difficult to live each day. There will be no victory. If the victory is dependent upon us, we win declaring spiritual realities. Get it? There is no responsibility on me to control my mind. I can't rededicate myself. I can't renew my purpose. I can't say, okay, God, you know, uh, every time I have that thought, I'm, go I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm going to say within myself, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Sound right? Total failure. Because where's the honest? Where's the burden? It's on me. I'm going to try to use my mind every time something comes up and I'm going to overcome it by the power of my mind. No, I'm going to win it because I declare a spiritual reality. And what's the spiritual reality? Nope. I asked God six months ago to take that away from me. He said yes, and I'm not bargaining with you. I'm not, I'm not negotiating with you. I'm not talking to you. I'm declaring to you what has already occurred. I'm not talking to you about whether I'm saved or not because I'm declaring to you spiritually at eight years old, that was settled. We win by declaring what has spiritually been established and spiritually real. If we don't go there, we're going to give room for him to come and talk to us, negotiate with us, and put a pressure on ourselves that somehow the freedom I'm walking in is up to me. I've got to maintain it. I've got to keep it going. I've got to, I've got to rededicate. I've got to renew. I've got, I, I, you know, it's up to me. Let me, let me continue in just what I wrote here because I want, I want you to get it here plus hear me explain it. Again, notice verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. There is no chance for us to truly be free if each battle is met with I or we and the new commitment or dedication to be strong in battle moments. The word carnal in Greek means having the nature of flesh governed by mere human nature, not by the spirit of God. Our weapons are not coming from me. My weapons cannot find the source in me. Those weapons that are not carnal cannot come from what I am capable of producing. If they're going to be mighty, where do they have to come from? It says right there, they're coming through God. They're coming spiritually. They're coming powerfully. They're coming in reality. And I will announce to you with, with an absolute certainty when we start being taught and realizing that when that old thought comes of something that God has, has clearly delivered us, something that God has dealt with and removed from us, and when the old comes, we don't even spin it to the point to think that somehow my mind is responsible for getting rid of that. Because if I create enough of a window right there to say, nope, I'm not going there. I'm not going to let my mind go there. I'm not... 
then by the fact that we had this long, this many sentences or this many words in a sentence, we opened a window to somebody else speak in that, while that window's open. We don't leave the window open. We don't open the window. We don't crack the window. And if, we, if the window happens to be open, when he sticks his hand through it, we slam it. We slam his fingers in the window. We declare to him, I will not hear you because on this date, this time, this place. Why did Paul over and over say, at noonday on the road to Damascus, King Agrippa, I saw this great light and I heard these words and, and, and Jesus said unto me, Paul, why do you do this? Why does he go back and tell that story? What's he doing? He's making a declaration in those moments of something that has already spiritually been accomplished. We win by his power, by spiritual reality. I can declare it. I don't have to negotiate. I don't have to review. I don't have to reconsider. I don't have to give him room to whisper something back to me because I will tell you, starting to negotiate with Satan in the soul, saying, well, I don't think and I don't feel, I know the outcome of that, and you do too. Been there way too many times trying to negotiate with Satan in the soul. Notice this next piece, verse five and six seem to put the honest on us. It cannot, however, if the weapons are mighty through God, we win these struggles by declaring that God has already settled that for which Satan wants to pick a fight. Let me read that again. We win these struggles by declaring that God has already settled, settled that for which Satan wants to pick a fight. Y'all heard me teach on this not too many weeks ago, that one of the unfortunate things that is happening in the Christian world is we, we try to teach things as absolutes that create legalism. And we often leave out those things that are absolutes because we're hesitant to say it because we know it might create disagreement. And y'all have, have been through a lot of these with me by now. One of those that I said a year ago or two years ago that kind of has this, this strange effect is when I say that all sin is forgiven. All sin in the world is forgiven. If you take someone... In, a, in an enemy army on the other side of the world and they, and they have them stand up and I ask you, are their sins forgiven? The answer is yes. Your sins are forgiven. That doesn't make them saved. Because only when they come into agreement with that fact that their sins are forgiven, but the cross did a complete work. There was no one's sin, past, present, or future that wasn't taken care of on the cross. So I can teach that as an absolute so that I can say to somebody when they're coming and, and talking to them about salvation, I don't tell them if you'll ask him, he'll forgive your sins. It's not true. I want to tell them your sins are already forgiven. That which he did on the cross has, has, has forgiven your sins when you come into agreement with that and you accept it to be your own. Then you'll be rescued from the weight of that sin that you didn't know that you thought you still had against you. I can also tell you with perfect confidence that upon your salvation, righteousness was delivered to you. That you have a right standing before God now as a child of God. And I can teach that absolutely. And I can tell you that you have no power to undo that once it's done. 
I mean, I can show you in the scripture, it's not hard. He who knew no sin became sin, our sin, for us, that we might know the righteousness of God in him. When God looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness now on me, on you, on us. He sees us as righteous. These are liberating things, liberating truths. And when we can begin to teach them in terms of yeses and certain yeses, it's amazing the freedom that will come when we hear the truth and, and actually let it set us free. He truly hopes that he can get us to battle him in the soul. He hopes to get us into a conversation about our mind being the place we win rather than the battlefield itself. Separate the two. Our mind is the battlefield. This is where the war is, is being raged. We, the book, The Battlefield of the Mind, it's a great book. But I will tell you, the battlefield is not where we get the weapons. We get the weapons not in our soul. We get the weapons in our spirit. And they are mighty through God for the pulling down of those strongholds. We win by announcing what God has done, not what we hope to accomplish. And there is a huge difference in the battle. All right. I've gone to sleep, so let's see if I can wake this thing up. The scene we'll start with tonight, last week, Mackenzie had had this conversation with the Holy Spirit in this garden. Remarkable episode, remarkable piece. Tonight, we'll start with Mac approaching the workshop where, where Jesus is busy working. It's a moment, just make a brief point. Uh, for most people that we minister to, or even us ourselves, it should be no surprise if hearing or listening to the Holy Spirit is foreign to us. We're often talking to people who even conceptually have never been told that God will speak. So to begin there and to begin to help them understand how God begins to speak to us and when he speaks to us, we have to often tell them how. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What is the experience like? And to help them because the, the, the words of the Holy Spirit in the conversation with God like in my history, I was taught that it didn't exist. I was taught up until the time when I realized differently when I was about 45 that God no longer spoke. And I find that quite odd that someone could convince me of that. But again, what, when it begins to change, when I ask, why would you have a child and at some point in their maturity decide they don't, I don't need to talk to them anymore? That's not a father's heart. That's, that's not, I, I can't find reasoning and understanding behind that, especially looking at the scripture and, and, and understanding the truth. But the, at the beginning, at least, acknowledge that when, when you're teaching someone to hear the voice of God, to hear that rhema word, that it might be terribly foreign, and that kind of a statement may be very typical. I don't know if I understand much that is said. It's just a, it's, it's a, a lighthearted moment there, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of truth in it. Verse 
Man, this is powerful. Now remember when we started, at the beginning of this point, there will be no healing, no restoration, no deliverance, no repentance, and no salvation until we understand that our mind and our heart of the battlefield, but the weapons are spiritual. So we come to this, this quote here, why are you doing this to me? And the response, it isn't me. There are a couple of questions that are necessary to answer as we approach this scene in the boat. First, where does our past haunt us? What do you think? In our mind. It's in our mind. Think about this. There's no way to work around this point. There's no way to work around this this issue, especially when, when healing is our topic. Where does our past haunt us? And the answer is clearly in our mind. Second, what do bodies of water represent in the Bible? I want to answer that second question first in the next, in the next paragraph. To the second question first, what do bodies of water often represent in the Bible? Bodies of water as compared to rivers of water, often represent evil, death, and chaos. This is seen in the reality of the Red Sea, which stood in the way of Israel's freedom as they were leaving Egypt. You look with, within the teachings of Jesus, within the Gospels, very often when he was in bodies of water, there was a storm. There was a conflict. Live... Rivers of water bring life. But very often, bodies of water represent something that stands between us and God. So those two things, knowing those, those two questions, we'll answer the first one in the, in the balance of this scene in just a second. Uh, letter C, if, it, if it's not Jesus causing this awful moment, who is it? Be careful of the answer here. Who do you think it is? Well, it's very often, it's very easy to say Satan. But in this scene, who is it? It's McKenzie. It's McKenzie because we recognize that the brokenness that's occurred, the healing that is needed, the turmoil of that past trauma that he's experiencing has left him in a place where he is now creating his own turmoil. He's creating his own disturbances. And we get, this, this gets addressed here in, in just a moment. It's not Jesus causing this awful moment. Who is it? I know the answer most often used is Satan. However, though this is certainly originated in Satan, he, yeah, he's the origin of it. Mac is also a likely candidate as the cause of this painful episode. We must get Satan in the crosshairs and identified as the only enemy. However, we must also recognize that the power to overcome already exists within us. We're waging a battle when the provision to win has already been provided. That's conceptually a challenge for us because it's like, Wait a minute, I'm, I've been struggling with this all along. And I can tell you, in deliverance often, when we get to the point, somebody finally, they want to know, what is, 
What does it take then? If I know what my false identity is, I know what the lie is, what does it take for me to be set free? And when I teach it and I draw it, it's like, are, are you serious? That's, that's what would set me free? For me to recognize over here that years ago, I asked God to remove from me the identity of being a sinner he introduced me to a savior so that if I ask and I receive that salvation that he's making available to me, that I will be saved. Yep, I'm telling you that. You believe that? Y'all believe that about yourselves? Then over here, I wonder if it would work. If over there I acknowledged I was a sinner, but over here I acknowledged that the identity that I've been carrying is I am poor. I wonder if I recognize it by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's revealed this to me. I wonder if as I did over there, I ask and I receive the salvation he made available. I wonder if over here, if I ask and receive the freedom that he wants to give me in, in the place of this bondage, I wonder if that would deliver me and set me free. What's the answer? Yes. And people say, you mean I've, I've had this available to me all along? Yep. It has always been there. Because what victory has he not already established? What battle is not already won? What conflict has not already been resolved in him? You see, I'm fighting something he's already settled. And the provision to settle it when I became his child was birthed in me that day. What I needed for the rest of my life to battle conflicts in the spirit was given to me, established on that day. Nobody happened to tell me. I didn't know. I thought once I'd asked to be, whether it would be this identity of being a sinner was taken care of, and I'm getting to go to heaven someday, I thought, well, all's good. But we know that there are still a few bumps in the road. And the provision to help me with those identities beyond I'm a sinner, I am alone, I am afraid, I am weak, I am poor, I am forgotten, I am not worth it. All of those other identities that exist out of brokenness within our hearts I can go back to him and I can hold it out just like I did. I'm a sinner. And if I ask him, I know as a loving father, I know what his answer is. Yes. Yes, I'll take it. And we get to mark down so that when Satan comes back and said, you see, you're still alone. Nope. I'm going to declare to you by, by that statement, I'm going to declare to you that back here, I asked God to take that identity of I'm alone away from me. He said, yes, I marked it on the calendar. This was the time. This was the place. This was the date. These are the people that were around. Satan, I'm going to defeat you by the declaration of what God has already accomplished in me. I'm not negotiating. There is, there is no conversation. told me to come out here. Mac, 
This is happening inside you. You see, this is, this is the beauty of the story and the tragedy found within it. Where is this turmoil? Where is this turmoil going on? Now, I, I'm, going to take, I'm going to take our mind away. I want that answer. Where is it happening? We hear often, you know, I, I ask this question, where, where was Solomon's temple? On the side of his face, just like where ours was. <laughs> Poor joke. Do we know ourselves to be the temple of God? Yes. Guess where this turmoil is going on? In the temple of God. Isn't that something? Would you expect that to be going on in the temple of God? I shared with you this morning, I changed it a little bit, but and I, don't, I wish... I would capture these things better. But Jan had shared a quote with me a couple of days ago or yesterday. And the thought was how strange it is that the mind that he gave us to comprehend him is now the mind I use to question him. And I changed it this morning to the heart he gave me to trust him is the place where my uncertainty rests, to doubt him. You see, he, he made us a temple of God where the presence of God could come and exist. And how much turmoil we're allowing in that temple, not because we intended to. We just don't know how to get rid of it. We don't... It's become so, the turmoil has become so normal to us that we, it's, it's almost like the, the, the normal occasions of a day. Turmoil is what we expect inside this temple, but isn't it strange because inside this temple, there's someone who lives and who loves to bear fruit. And what is the fruit? What does Galatians 5 say the fruit is? Love, peace, joy, long-suffering. The Spirit of God in us is producing something each day that was already designed to destroy that which is creating turmoil. How powerful that line. When he says, Mac, this is happening inside you. You're letting this consume you and you don't have to. Do you realize tonight that whatever's going on inside you, you already have the power to overcome it? I was, I was sharing with somebody earlier, one of these things that we conceptually have missed is, and I, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but I really wonder how many times we continue as believers to pray, Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me hope. Lord, give me joy. And we should know that the answer every time to that request is no. I won't. 
He won't give you strength. He won't give you joy. He won't give you peace. The answer will be no, but why? This is a, we need to know the why. It's already given. He can't give us what he's already given us. He doesn't have any more joy to give us because on the day we were saved, the full provision of joy from heaven was delivered to me. The full provision of strength, the full provision of goodness was delivered to me. And it's been deposited in an account. And, and, and they're fully, just as it was with Jesus, fully ready to be used. It's deposited and, and now there's a need. We can see a need. Why can't we get what we've already been given to the need we're facing? I love the illustration because it's such a plain one because, again, you walk into a bank, you fill out this piece of paper and you slide it across this counter and the person behind the counter reaches into this drawer and starts counting out money and gives it to you. And you walk out with it. Something that looks fishy. Except what? Whose money is it? It's yours. I'm simply taking that which I know I already have. And by this transaction, I'm using it against the situation that I face. We just don't happen to know what the transaction is. I'm going to make this a briefer version. It's obedience. How did Jesus get that which was the heavenly provision that he gained access to at his baptism? How did he get it released against this need? Obedience. He listened to the Father. He watched for the Father. He did what the Father showed him because without the Father, he could do nothing. He could only do what he could see. He could only speak what he would hear out of obedience when that act of obedience, the provision that had been given at his baptism was released against the situation in front of him. And guess what? It's never changed. It's never changed. The provision to overcome this was already in Mac, here's the answer to that first question I mentioned earlier. Where does our past haunt us? It haunts us inside us, in our minds and in our emotions. The battlefield is identified, but the, vic the means of victory is not yet revealed. The thing that we had to drink out of, it was empty, but, and, it was, and it was dirty. And we washed it, and it was good and clean, and now full of water, but I went outside and I picked something up off the ground, perhaps left by an animal at some point. And I, and I, and I drop it in here. What's the likelihood you're going to want to drink it? Not so much. So I was like, well, simple answer. I'm going to give you a long pair of tweezers and let you get it all out. So you, you stare at it. You stare down in this bottle and you're looking and, you're, and you touch it and it comes apart and it's like, you're, you're, you know, how long would this take to get that out of there? It's not going to happen. So what, what would help here? What if I raise my eyes and quit looking at the problem, quit focusing on, on, that, on the problem, and this illustration works a little better if I've got a cup, but I don't have a cup. Imagine a cup. If I raise, if I raise my eyes and I see this fire hose, <clears throat> there's a valve right here. 
and I can hold this out and open that valve, what's the chances that whatever's in there is going to stay? Am I going to? No. I turn, that, I turn that on. Whatever's in that cup is coming out of there so fast. And I can run it for an hour if you want me to. I can run it for two hours. But I will tell you, it wouldn't take me long to realize that this provision, cleaning this out, was going to make this something acceptable to me. I'll tell you that we don't, we, we have such a tendency to stare at that which has broken our hearts, the pain that, that, is, that things have caused. We stare at it because we've been taught that if I work hard enough, I can get it out of there. If I can control my mind, control my emotions, I can get rid of that which has, has, has affected this, and it's not true. But if I'll raise my eyes and find the provision that God made to clean this, we know what it is. It's First John. If you will confess, then I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I can't stare at what I've done wrong. I have to raise my eyes and look into the face of the one who said, I will take care of it if you'll confess it. If you'll just bring it to me, hold it out to me and confess it, I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness that remains, everything that's there that doesn't belong. And so we, we, I should find no great surprise here that the instruction is, look at me. Because where has his mind been fixed for, for, for now several years? Because we're several years after this tragic moment. Where has his mind been fixed? Yeah, on, on this death, on this great tragedy, every moment on, on the brokenness, the pain, the mistakes, the errors, the judgment, everything consuming, consuming, the mind focused, and this is the outcome. And, and we're finally coming to this place of healing, but God has got to get our eyes lifted up off of that which we have concentrated on for so long, the brokenness that's been there for way too long, he's got to get us to lift our eyes and see beyond that to see the provision that was already there, always there, or, or, there, will, or there will be no great healing. Trust me, none of this can hurt you. Isn't that odd? Because we believe, what, what's, what's it doing every day? What do we believe is happening every day? It's what? It's hurting me. But what's the, what's the origin of it? Where is it coming from in this, in this scene? Where is it coming from? It's coming from Mac on a battlefield of his mind and we have here a truth that says none of this can hurt you. Those things that we're imagining, those things that we've replayed, the things that we're living through over and over and over. Man, what a powerful reminder that these can, none of these things can hurt you, but what's, what's required? What were the first two words of this? Trust me. Trust me. There will be no great healing until this transfer is made. There will be no great transition in our lives. And as I said to you this morning, it's amazing that we love a God that we do not trust. 
we will announce with all gravity that I love you, I love you, God. We'll sing it to him. It's amazing that we declare such love for a God that we do not trust. We don't see him as capable or some of our problems wouldn't have existed this long. Good, Mac, I'm not going anywhere. Now let's get you out of this boat. His promise that he will never leave us or forsake us is that great source of trust we said about earlier. Trust is a confidence and faith that he will sustain me over all time and forever. I have and live in the good fortune of watching many take those first steps outside of that, bur- that boat of their own minds, the place where the turmoil has been. For the last 11 and a half years, I've had the, the good blessing of God to sit and watch that moment time and time again. And watch somebody stand in a place where they should not stand, only made possible by faith, standing on something that previously terrified them. And again, I know it's a movie, but what has water meant to McKenzie up to this point from that tragic day? What has water meant? Tragedy. Tragedy. Great tragedy. Now where's he standing? On it. In a place of victory. Now, there's still a great deal for McKenzie to learn and great lessons of of overcoming. The scene that happens next in the cave, which is where we'll be next week, is probably one of the most powerful scenes within this movie. So much is learned there, so much revealed there. But what a powerful prelude into that moment to recognize that now he's taking his first steps in a place where he should not be in a place of freedom that he would not have ever imagined, no longer encumbered to believe mentally or emotionally, I'm stuck in that boat, in that place of our mind, that separated from God. I ask this last question, what does now let's get you out of this boat mean to you? Thoughts, your, your perceptions of that moment when Jesus says now let's get you out of this boat. It does mean freedom, doesn't it? Anyone else? Get you out of the mess you thought you were in. Yeah. And get, get, you out, get you out of the mess that you thought you were in that was playing out in a place where it should never have existed. Yeah, Anita. Karen, when I moved in with Karen and Chris, they never locked their house. Never. Whenever they leave, when, at night, never locked their house. And I had to express to Karen one time right after I moved here, that I believe that if anything happened to me on the highway while I was driving, 
God will take care of me. I come to realize that if you'll take care of me on the highway, you'll take care of me in that house with the doors. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty subtle understanding. There's some there's some real gravity to that to that conceptually because that you're describing well our conditional trust. We off, we we will often say I, I, tr I trust him, but it becomes situation by situation. Great point. For those of you who walk in a freedom, having already been delivered or experienced some of this. I hope that you're connecting that, that the moment when you prayed and said before the Father, Father, I know, I've known myself as whatever it was and I'm asking you to take it from me, that what actually occurred in that moment, you stepped out of the boat. But there's a strange moment in this where, that I find that there's a place where Mackenzie stood up, shoes removed, ready to make the step. And that's where I find so many. The, the boat is calm, standing up, but will not move into the place that God has in store. Joe, give me just a second. I'll come right back to you. Give me just a second. I ask a question when, when right before someone's delivered, the first question I ask them is, are you willing to leave? Are you willing to separate yourself from your past forever? Now, the question isn't designed to just say, yes, I want rid of the hurt. The question is, are you willing to step into the future God has, which requires that severing? And I use the story of the rich young ruler. Now, we make that about money because it, it, that's, I mean, there's a real point to that. But when he tells this young man, well, I want you to, to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and I'll give you treasures in heaven. We have these two positions now juxtaposed against one another. He's saying, I've got treasure for you. Now, in this, in this scene, what's he going to have to do to get to the treasure? Get out of the boat. Where did the rich young ruler stay? Stayed in the boat. He, he came and said, I want to follow you. I've kept your commandments. I want to follow you. And Jesus said, well, he loved him. He just liked one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Well, something behind this, this man was more valuable to him than something in front. And we find many who are stuck in that position, desperately wanting to be away from the hurt of their past. But that's not the question. The question is, once that, 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 that that's been dropped, are you willing to anxiously run willingly to the future he has for you? The future where your mouth is open, your testimony comes freely, the power of the, of, of the transfer, the power of the exchange, the power of what God has done in me is lived out fully, lived out. We walk it, we tell it, we share it 
so that others will recognize that by that which is, I'm free, that they will hear that testimony and dream of freedom for themselves. But I can tell who stands in the boat wanting to take that step and those who truly take it. There's a, dr- a dramatic difference in the way that life looks. God won't grow anxious. He won't grow angry. We don't hear, even in the movie, portrayed, we don't hear frustration on Jesus' part as he's trying to get McKenzie out of the boat, but he's coaxing him. It's all right. What do you do? Just walk now. It's, it's, I find it much easier to get people to step out of their brokenness than it is to get them to step into their fullness. Because it is two different things. Any other comments? All right, Father, thank you tonight that once again you just let us use this, this means. We know, we know, God, that we don't have the privilege of using this outside of truth we know, the, the Scripture, and who we know you are and your nature of goodness. We don't have the privilege of stretching and twisting. But Father, you're showing us something here just in a simple way that, that, that is so, so with, with such gravity because there are so many even in here that still need healing, but there's, still, there's so many in here right now that can go out and share that healing with others. So thank you, Father, that you remind us, that you teach us, that you show us even tonight, that our battlefield is our, the battlefield is our mind, but our weapons are powerful and strong through you for pulling down these things that exist in our mind that are birthed there and remain there and tended to there. And remind us tonight, Father, that we've always had in you the power to tear down those strongholds. Thank you, Father, that you remind us of this so well. And let us walk in that freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.